Welcome to CrossGen Pride, a podcast series created by the Monmouth University School of Social Work's LGBT Plus Older Adult Project. In each episode, we hear unique personal stories from LGBT Plus people within our communities. Through conversation, our goal is to increase understanding and bridge the gap between generations. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Smith and Dominique Langell, social work student interns here at Monmouth University. On this episode of CrossGen Pride, we will be speaking with our guest, Riley, who shares his journey of finding his true self. Riley D. Keenan, pronouns are he, him, his, holds a Bachelor of Science. He's also a program director, kaleidoscope advocate, behavioral specialist, trainer, and consultant. Mr. Keenan has been working in the human services field since 1994. He is not only a steadfast advocate for the LGBT plus community, but has been a member of the community for 37 years. He is dedicated to helping LGBT youth who are so often targeted and can be forced into becoming homeless. Mr. Keenan's mission is to provide an understanding of the daily struggles that youth and adults can face as part of the community. Due to lack of information, data, and resources, his primary focus is trans youth. During his presentations and trainings, he discusses specific issues and risk factors that can contribute to substance use, depression, and suicide, particularly in youth. He also discusses the importance of support from family or chosen family and friends, caregivers, school systems, and healthcare providers in order to reduce barriers and stigma. He wants to be sure that anyone that is hearing this knows that you have survived 100% of your worst days to this point, and now hopefully you can start to live 100% of your best days. I don't like to refer to um, my experience as transitioning because to me, I, it's really a journey of just really being able to be my true self. I love that. That's a great way to put it. Because that's really what I did. It really is. Mm. Well, we're so excited to talk about your process of becoming your truest self. Yeah. Awesome. So um, right now I am, uh, I just turned 53. Um, I knew that I, my body did not match who I was and who I saw myself and who I felt I was when I was six. I have an older biological brother. And I remember clearly saying to him around six years old, why isn't my body the same? Why can't I pee standing up? (laughs) Why can't we switch bodies? (laughs) Um, And I always was different. Um, I don't really have like strong family connections. So it, when I was growing up, it was myself Um, my biological mother, my biological older brother, and a stepdad. Um, And my mother always tried to force me, all all female things on me, like Barbie dolls, uh, you know, curling my hair, just everything. She used to, like, make me sit in the bathroom and watch her put on her makeup. Um, but when my, when it came time to, for the weekends, I could go with my stepdad because he owned his, um, own business. He was a mechanic and I just like, I was in heaven when I would go with him. Um, I remember when I was younger, my mom gave me, it was like a Barbie doll, just head 
where you could do like hair and makeup and stuff. Oh yeah. And I hated that thing. And I remember <laughs> I punched it in the face and like kind of caved the face in. And my older brother was like, Oh my God, what are you doing? So he, I gave him my Barbie and I took his Tonka trucks. And I thought that was a pretty fair exchange. My biological mother and I had a lot of problems. We didn't get along. Um, There was uh, some definitely um, emotional abuse and physical abuse because I just, I wasn't who she wanted me to be. Um, I'm so sorry. I remember she uh, sent me to Catholic school from second to sixth grade to try and fix me. That didn't work. Um, I remember that she made me go to a therapist who I believe he was a conversion therapist based on what I know now and the tactics that he used when I went to see him. How old Uh, were you when she made you go to him? uh, It was right before she kicked me out of the house. So I was probably like 10 or 11. Oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. Um, I was always told that there was something wrong with me. Um, I I tried to, like, dress. I dressed in boys' clothes as often as I could. And even from a young age, I was um, very gender neutral. So I was referred to as it. What is it? Who is oh, it? Um pretty much most of my childhood through my early adolescence. By your parents? Um, your stepdad? Not by my stepdad. He, he, he was really kind of hands-off on a lot of things. Like His perspective was that he worked and gave us a roof over our head, and that was kind of it. Um, mm-hmm. My biological mom is the one that um, it, really all of that were was at her hands and her deeds. So because I wasn't the child that she wanted me to be, she um, told me I was going to go stay with my biological father, who I had seen once when I was six years old. So she packed up my belongings in a trash bag, and um, he came down with his wife. And I just remember sitting in the back seat, looking out the window and crying because I didn't know who these people were or where I was going. Um, so I stayed with them for a while. So basically I was, I was a throwaway and that's the way I felt. Um, I, he couldn't handle me because I had a lot of emotional issues because of the way I was treated. So I acted out a lot. Um, he brought me back to Massachusetts And then probably from the time I was 13 until I was 16, I was homeless, like living on the street or living at friends' houses and things like that. So, Wow, um, Riley. That's a lot. Definitely, especially for such a young child. Yeah, I just, um, I had no self-worth, no self-value. I was really in a survival mode. So I, I didn't really have the capability of developing like the skills for personal relationships. Um, 
<clears throat> I do have to say though that my my grandmother, my biological mom's mother, her name was Alice, and um, she was the only constant in my life. I I went to Vermont. I came back to Massachusetts. Um, I got shipped off to my stepdad's parents' house in Oregon. Um, they didn't want me, so I got shipped back to Massachusetts. And uh, my grandmother was like the only constant. Like, even if I didn't see her, I would have contact with her. Um, so after all that happened, I I was I actually ended up in um, living in um, a home of a, a Sunday school teacher that I had had. I was in school, and somehow I got reconnected with her, and she just told me I could come live with her. Um, oh wow. So she had an older son. At that time, I was uh, drinking very heavily, doing a lot of drugs, um, had attempted suicide a couple of times, um, a lot of really risky, high-risk behavior. And she was, um, she was a, a spiritual woman. She wasn't really religious. So um, her name was uh, Mrs. T. And eventually I started calling her um, Mom T. <laughs> so I assume that you guys ended up developing a pretty close relationship. Oh yeah, I loved her. I still do. And how old were you when you went to live with her? Uh So my memory is really bad when it comes to age ranges. I was I think 16. Okay. So you when was... I was with her cuz I was still in high school. Okay. Um like I would come home and there would be like milk and cookies on the counter. And she always made sure that I was fed. She always asked me like how I was doing. And it was funny because the house that she lived in, she actually cleaned the church that we lived next to. So we got to live in the house next to the church. Um, so her son had one room because he was older. And then her and I shared a room. And I remember there was like an office petition that she put up in between so I could at least have my own space. But I felt safe there and I felt like she cared about me, mm. even though I still gave her a run for her money. <laughs> <laughs> I was a really messed up kid. Um, I mean, really with everything you went through, mm -hmm. is that really like surprising? I mean, you had a family no. life that wasn't too great. And then you found this woman who took you in like her own. Yeah. And um, I was very poor. Like, we had nothing. I had nothing. I showed up at her house with a garbage bag. That was my luggage. Um, and I think I probably had like four outfits in it. That was pretty much it. Um, so I got made fun of and I didn't really like fit in anywhere. And then there was this really cool chick <laughs> her name was martha and she had like a mohawk and it, her hair was jet black and she the, the mohawk part was dyed blue and uh like so her and i started hanging out and <clears throat> i remember she she asked me she's like are you gay and i'm like what does that mean she's like well do you like girls and i was like uh she's like well have you ever had a crush on a boy i'm like no even though i had forced relationships with boys uh, not by my choice um, but I never 
like had a girlfriend. So at that point too, she, um, she went to a program called Narcotics Anonymous and I knew I needed to stop like doing drugs and drinking because I had overdosed a few times and all this other stuff. So I remember I went home and I told Mom T that I met this girl named Martha and that we were going to start going to um, NA meetings and AA meetings. And I remember I was sitting in the living room and I looked down and in the bookcase, she had an AA big book. So she was like, okay, if you need to do that. So I, I went there and basically Martha and I, Martha just helped me like realize as a person that I was okay. Um, along with mom T and, and, you know, I, I went through high school and I graduated. Um, I didn't really learn anything. I found out later in life when I went to college that, um, I'm severely dyslexic and I have ADHD. Um, I decided I was going to move out and work and I kept in touch with mom T for a little bit, but, um, for some reason when I had moved and stuff, she changed her phone number and I had lost contact with her. So, Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, so I just kind of went through like my adult life. I tried going to, uh, um, a junior college because I, I thought that I wanted to, you know, better myself. And my grandmother was a school teacher and uh, she used to help me read and do my schoolwork and stuff. So I tried going to college and um, I wasn't doing well at all. So I decided to quit before I failed. And I just proceeded to do like, you know, hard labor jobs. Um, and I just kind of like went through life friends and uh at the time she had a little boy and his name was Tommy and um I was young I was 20 and she was older than me and we started living together and then all of a sudden I became like a father figure to this little boy and uh was he uh, he recently overdosed and died recently oh, so I'm so sorry So, uh, that little boy still fills my heart because I did everything opposite of what my parents did to me. And, uh, I remember I went and, um, got a tattoo. So when, um, his mother and I were together, she actually, we were talking about having another baby and um, behind my back, she slept with one of my male friends and got pregnant. Oh my gosh. I'm and, so uh, sorry, Riley. And she said that she did it so that she could give me a baby, but that, I don't know. That was a whole mess. So when, uh, when the baby was born, her name was Taylor. I remember I went out and I got a tattoo and I got a little wing with Taylor's name on it. And I came home and Tommy was like, I was first. You left me first. Where's my name? So I had to go out that day and bring him with me and I got his name on me. So I have my two kids Aww. tattooed on me. Um, 
So unfortunately, Michelle and I didn't stay together and I lost contact with her for a very long time. Um, and then we actually reconnected. It was through uh, Facebook, I think it was. And um, I actually was able to talk to Tommy and we wrote letters together and I was supposed to go see him in Florida and then uh, I found out he overdosed. So sorry. There's really nothing like, especially someone who, you know, your child. Um, yeah. I'm sure you gave him a lot of years of love and that's what you have to Absolutely. hold on to. Oh, I know. I did. I loved him to death. I used to drive him. I, I know it wasn't safe now, but I used to have a motorcycle and his, his daycare before school was right down the street. So I would ride him on my motorcycle. And we would stop at the coffee shop and have a donut <laughs> and hot chocolate. And he thought he was king shit because he was riding into, into school on a motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> he had his little jean jacket and work boots on and all that. That's so cute. But, uh, you were the coolest dad at daycare. <laughs> I was the coolest dad. So here's the thing. Like I remember I still have pictures and cards that he's made me and one I, one year for Father's Day he uh, made me a card and he didn't say like Happy Father's Day because I was female bodied back then so he wrote like my uh, given name he wrote Happy Kim's Day <laughs> Kim's Day that is oh. Father's Day <laughs> that's very sweet yeah so so I had a chance to like know that I could be loved and that I could love, you know, like the reason why I'm saying these, this is because those relationships really, I can't say healed my pain, but let me know that it, that it was okay and gave me permission to, you know, explore that. So I kind of went through life and, um, at 25, I decided I was going to go to school. I actually, uh, I was in Boston and I used to work in a lot of the gay clubs doing security work and stuff. And um, I was there and I met this girl and we hit it off and she had a friend and her friend, her friend's name was Amber. And I remember the first night I met them, we were driving back to her, to this girl's place and Amber, I'm sitting in the front seat with this girl and Amber pokes her head in. She's like, are you sure you're not a guy? Are you sure? Are you sure you're not a guy? All that being said, I dated this girl for a little while, and I actually um, applied to the college that her and Amber went to, and I actually got in. And that's where I learned that um, because of the aptitude tests and stuff, I learned that I was dyslexic and um, had ADHD. So um, I started going to school, and actually Amber and I, have been friends for like half my life. It's awesome. <laughs> um, so I went through my journey and I went to school and I did a variety of things and um, up, up to my story now of transitioning and or becoming my true self back then it was transitioning. I was married. I had a house in Collingswood, New Jersey. Um, I still didn't feel like my life was right, even though it looked picturesque, you know, like I had a big, huge house in Collingswood. I was working. I had a wife, all of that. 
and uh, we were going through some marital problems. So I started counseling at the Mazzoni Center in uh, Philadelphia. And I remember my counselor saying, um, do you think you're trans? Because I always, I always physically express myself and, you know, outwardly express myself and thought of myself as male, but was stuck in this female body. So she was like, do you think you're trans? And I'm like, what is that? Now at 42, I've traveled the world. I had opportunities to travel the world um, through different jobs that I had. I was college educated at that point, And I had no idea what that was. And I was like, what is that? And she explained to me what transgender was. And I remember she told me about the, um, the transgender conference that happens in Philadelphia. So I actually went there at 41 and I went to uh, some workshops and for the first time in my life, I felt like I knew quote unquote, what was wrong with me. Wow. Did that grant you solace of any kind or was it more stressful for you at the time to rethink? Oh my God. No, I walked in and I, I literally stood in the middle of the lobby and I was like, these are my oh. people. <laughs> That's... This is where I belong. Oh. Like I did. I'm not a bashful guy. I'm, sometimes I probably embarrass people, but <laughs> but that's like I remember going into this one workshop, and it was a workshop about <clears throat> people showing showing the results of their top surgery. So it was like post surgery, and I remember seeing all these men with their shirts off, and I remember seeing this one gentleman, and he had like silver white hair, and he was all buff. But he was like an older guy, but he was tan. He had like a six pack. And I'm like, that's who I need <laughs> to look like. That's who I want to be. I am very shy away from the six pack and the tan. <laughs> <laughs> I have a few gray hairs, but not many. Um, so, yeah, so that's when I realized that that's, that's what I was missing. That's what, that's who I was. And I, found a way to be my true self. So I went to counseling for a year because in Philadelphia, um, 11 years ago, it was mandated that you went to psychotherapy for a year before you could even be prescribed testosterone. Speaking to other guests, we learned that too. And I still like, it still shocks me when I hear that. Um, Definitely. Yeah. You know, that it takes so long. Yeah. Yeah, to even get like a first shot of tea, like ridiculous, right? People can get Botox and, you know, calf implants, but I can't get medication that's going to help me be mm-hmm. myself. So, so I did. I went to counseling for a year. My therapist was actually awesome. Um, I was also at that point diagnosed with uh, PTSD. I was also in the service too, back in Desert Storm, and that didn't work out so well. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So basically my life from the time I was 12 until I was 41, I tried a multitude of different av- avenues to try and fit in and find out what I was good at, who would love me and where I'd be accepted. Um, and, you know, what I found out after going through therapy is that 
I kept looking for everything on the outside and I really needed to kill myself on the inside and know that I was good enough. And that's what I started to do. And I was actually grateful to have that therapy for a year because it, it really did help me a lot. So uh, I went and I started my testosterone and um, I remember I told my wife at the time that I was transitioning to, you know, back then I called it transitioning, transitioning to be a male. And she said, if I wanted to marry a man, I would have. So we were going through a very bad divorce and, you know, the house and all that other stuff. And I said, fine. And I went and got an apartment and continued on with my journey. So um, I remember when our divorce got final, um, I had uh, applied for a credit card. And uh, I got something in the mail and I looked at it and it was a credit card. Now, back then, no insurance paid for top surgery. So I had to pay for it myself. Terrible. So I was looking at between $10,000 and $12,000. So I, I remember I get this envelope and it's a credit card and I look at it. And I'm thinking to myself, and I looked at it and I thought it said the credit limit was $1,000. And I was like, okay, this will be a good emergency card. And I tucked it away. And then I looked at it again, like three days later. And it was actually a credit card with a credit limit of $10,000. So I called my surgeon and I was like, book it, book it now before they change their mind. (laughs) So I paid for my surgery with a credit card that came from my divorce. Wow. So, yeah. So I, uh, I had, I was on T for about a year at that point, and I was actually working as a clinician in a substance use um, outpatient program. And I remember, like, there's a certain point when you start taking tea where you're okay, but then, then your voice starts to change and you sound like Peter <laughs> Brady. <laughs> and then, you know, if you're lucky, you get facial hair. So I had to tell my, the place where I worked that I was transitioning because my voice was starting to change and I was shaving because I didn't want them to see my hair. So um, I actually found somebody to come and speak to them about what transitioning was and what it meant. I also brought in like a whole stack of um, other companies that was protection for transgender, for people that were transgendered so they couldn't fire me. Because I was really afraid I was going to lose my job. Wow. So, uh, so I booked my surgery. And I remember I had to tell all my clients. Um, and I also was involved with clients that had drug court. So they had probation officers and they had to go to court and everything. So I basically had to tell anybody that I was working with professionally what I was doing. And, um, you know, they had a choice to choose another clinician or not. And um, I worked with males, females, like a variety of people, and not one of them chose to have another clinician. I had my surgery. My job sent me a man basket. (laughs) (laughs) That's so thoughtful. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. Um, So, you know, that went well. Um, You know, I. uh, it's funny because when I had my, right before I had my surgery, 
my um, biological mom and I were actually talking again. And um, she moved from Massachusetts to New Jersey. And she said, well, I want to take care of you. And I was like, in my mind, I'm like, well, you've never taken care of me before. So we'll see how this goes. So um, after my surgery, I stayed at her house for two days. And I left because she said, well, you're not going to take your shirt off when we go to the beach. And you're not going to do this. And you're not going to do that. And she still called me by the name that she gave me. When I changed my name to Riley in 1997. So why, this is more a rhetorical question, why would she want to take care of you when really? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think she had a, a, a moment of motherly feelings. But when it actually came time to nurture me, she it, it was it was disgraceful. Like... Yeah. So after like a day, I call it my best friend. I'm like, bring me home. So um, before my surgery, like I had everything set up because I had T-Rex arms and I couldn't lift my arms up higher than the counter. So I had everything set up. So um, I did that. And then I just went about life. And and actually, um, right after my surgery, um, I actually started doing public speaking. So I, I, put myself out there and I've spoken at schools. Um, I've spoken at um, Comcast. I've spoken at Campbell Soup. Um, I've spoken with um, with the drug court clients, judges, prosecutors, attorneys. They had a huge conference. I spoke there. Um, I spoke in front of 565 people. That's so, amazing. I, that really is. I kind of yeah, so I've kind of just talked about my journey. Like initially when I do my presentations, you know, I talk about LGBTQ and statistics and, you know, all of that stuff. And then I put up about eight pictures of me from when I was a child, probably about two until now. And I just talk about the different periods of my life. Um, and what I found is that when I do that and I walk up to somebody and I put my hand on their shoulder, they can't hate you if they like you. Mm -hmm. They can't hate you if they feel like they know something about you. They can't hate you if you're standing right in front of them and you've spoken to them and something has touched their heart. So that's what I try and do. Um, so now I... It's going to touch a lot of hearts because we can tell that everything that you just shared was from the heart and, you know, and I can tell at times, like it's a very emotional journey to rehash mm -hmm. in your head, but we're so grateful that you chose us to help you do that here. Well, thank you. It's funny. Cause I actually asked a friend of mine, like why? Cause I'll be in a, I'll be in a room with 400 people and I get choked up and I have to take a minute. You know what I mean? And I talked to a friend of mine. I said, why is that? Why do why does that happen? And she said, because it's trauma mm -hmm. and you're living, you know, pain that you went through. And because it's not negatively, just because it's not negatively affecting me and I'm not, I'm able to, I've been able to work through it. 
doesn't make it go away. And that's one thing that I want people to understand is that whatever journey that people are on and everybody has has the hurts that they carry, you can definitely work through it so it doesn't negatively impact you. But I think because I still get emotional, that's what continues me to drive and move forward and keep doing what I'm doing because I don't want anyone, I want to hopefully help somebody stop that journey on that path especially with the self-destructive behavior because no one on this earth, you're not born wrong. There's nothing wrong with you. You're not an it. You're just a person. You're a human being that Mm -hmm. you're a person that has a heart and a soul and deserves to not only live, but thrive and be loved and to love others. Absolutely your life experiences that you've told us help that you've given people. I'm sure that you've been able to really help people push and go forward at the lowest points of their life. People who are transgender going through it right now, trying to figure out who they are um, compared to, you know, when, when you started, it's just, it's, it's very different now, but it's still, I feel like there's still so many people who, are just confused and they feel alone and you know so the one, yeah the one thing that's not different is what you go through inside mm-hmm. definitely you know um there might be more access to some healthcare things at least in New Jersey you don't have to jump through 5000 hoops it took me 2 years to get all my legal documents to match two years but now in new jersey it's the process a lot easier so you know i think when people say things are easier some of the external things some of the things that have to do with society recognizing who you are as a person may be easier there's a lot of internal things that like unless i don't know I'm not saying that people can't empathize for sure, but the external ease, you have to be able to be in a good headspace and be who you are and be comfortable with that in order to move forward with, you know, tackling how society views you and legitimizing yourself. And that's the thing I think that's honestly is the worst is that in every aspect of being trans, you are constantly trying to legitimize who you are. That is a very difficult aspect, and I can't even imagine how it must be to have to legitimize your own existence for so long. And I think that your willingness to be open and vulnerable with people is probably what draws them in, because Mm -hmm. I feel like people, especially now, um, vulnerability is, it's very rare that you find someone who is able to tell their story in such a touching and inspiring way. Yeah, so and openly and freely, important. too. Absolutely. Well, thank you. I feel like um, my story is not unique. And like you said, I hope that, you know, 
any aspect, whether it's all, part, or some, that somebody can say, wow, that's where I was, that's how I felt, so there is hope. Like, I am a well-adjusted, very high-functioning, happily married man, you know, with my little pot belly, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and and my beard and my mustache that's now too scruffy because I've been working from home for a year. You know, but um, but one thing that was really kind of cool and scary was just trying to figure out what type of man I wanted to be. Definitely. Well, are, are you happy with the man that you are today? Oh, yeah, because at first I was like, I'm sappy. I'm, you know, because society's view of men is be strong. Don't cry. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm just not that type of guy. You know what I mean? I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm I'm small, but I'm mighty and like strength in my opinion and things like that. But I'm just a caring person. We can tell. Yeah. Happens to be a, a man, but I still have, you know, certain views that I think other men share and other views I don't share with men, you know, um, so that's another thing, like to be able to talk to young, young teenagers and say, hey, you can choose to be the type of man you want to be. Mm-hmm. You don't have to fit in society's view of treating women poorly, not expressing your feelings, not admitting when you're wrong. You know what I mean? All of those things. And that's definitely something that I think that everyone, not just people in the trans community, can definitely benefit from learning because I see it a lot. I see a lot of societal views skewing how people think of themselves, how they think of others. Mm-hmm. And I think it's time that we break down those walls and like the barriers because it's just toxic for everybody. And I think that you're doing oh. a really good job of trying to do that in your own life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. When I was female bodied, I got, I got called it. I was in, Macy's in New York City and a security guard came in and threw me out of the bathroom. Oh no. Yes. So like I never tried on clothes. I never went to the doctors. I never went to public bathrooms because I was very masculine. I, I dressed like a man. <clears throat> like I said, I was what is it? I get that I heard that all the time. But being trans, like if anybody found out that I didn't want me. What, what could happen to my wife? What could happen to my house? What could happen to my car? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Thank God I work for a company that that knows I'm trans because I spoke at their staff training before I became uh, an employee there. So that's not an issue. But, you know, being trans and being open is still very dangerous. Absolutely. So for me to kind of be open, it's it takes it's a risk. Scary, you know yes, I mean? it's scary. But I just finally feel like it's on a platform now where more people can hear Absolutely. this. Maybe somebody listening to this that's been searching for some answer can hear not only my story but the other participants that you've asked. And just be able to take a deep breath and know that that they're okay. 
there are a lot of kids um, around like 12, 13 even who are coming yep. out as trans now um, yep. and accepting yep. their true selves. And their story might be vastly different from yours, but they might be going through something a little bit similar. Is there anything that you have yeah. to say to those kids who maybe don't have someone like you to look up to? Yeah, so um, Center for Family Services is the agency that I work for. And we have a peer-to-peer youth support group for LGBT kids, for youth. And it is ages 12 to 18. We will be doing virtual meetings, support groups, beginning in March. And we're going to be having, um, like cooking classes and a hair and makeup tutorial by my by my friend who is African American so he can you know give some hair and makeup tips maybe for a young lady that is African American that I don't know how to do hair but he knows how to do hair and makeup but there is help out there and there is support so the um the the youth group is called Kaleidoscope we have a Facebook page there is also a phone number, which I want to give to Absolutely. you. Absolutely. It's 800-255-4213. It's an LGBT youth support group, and that's our hotline. We're also on Facebook. So please um, know that it, you don't have to be in Jersey. It's going to be um, a virtual platform that will be on a secure server, and only people that come through me will be invited to the group. And do these, do these kids need their parents' permission to do this? Okay, no. I just wanted to clarify that. Three available methods of communication. There's going to be a chat. There's going to be, um, we can do virtual. We can do voice. So anything that the kids choose to do, basically we're going to have, we're going to have the support group come up and if kids want to join in either with video or not they can even just join in on the chat and chime in it's um, kaleidoscope, kaleidoscope has been in existence for quite some time now like many years but because of the pandemic um, everything kind of dropped off so now we're basically doing a relaunch um, and then once we meet in person we'll be able to meet at some um, family success centers where it'll be safe and um, inviting atmosphere. Thank you. So you're giving us so many resources today. Thank you. (laughs) Because I want to be able to help as many people as possible, whether it's giving them a phone number or just saying you're going to be okay, whatever the case may be. So if I don't know about it, I will find it. Thank you so much, Riley. And thank you for the work that you guys are doing. This is so important. Thank you so much. That means a lot. Thank you.